I don't recall in, in a number of years whether we've ever had a, t a family prayer time like this. Certainly the circumstances are, are not what we uh, would hope. Come on, where am I? You know how this works? All right, there we go. We're, we're good. Um, and, and so we have a time like this where we can think with one another and pray for uh, those who are hurting in our congregation. And it's not just the two families, but we know that many of you have gone through very difficult times as well, and some still in them. Uh, when I, I think about, you know, just what we've, we've done, there's a story behind each one of your lives. Uh, there's a story that has maybe not been told, and I, I wish that there was an opportunity at some point for us just to sit together as a family and tell me your story. Um, and then I could tell you my story. And what we would find is that there are things that are in common in those stories, but there are an awful lot of differences in those stories as, as well. Um, different twists, different turns. Our stories might have parents. They might not have parents. Uh, they might have money. They might not have money. Um, our, our stories might, might be that our, our parents stayed together all of their lives. Our stories might be, I don't even know who my parent is. And somehow God has used all those stories and, and woven them together in our lives and we come to a place where at some point we meet someone who changes our lives. And, and that someone is the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I, I look back on, on my life, graduating from high school, I had no clue what I wanted to do. Anybody else like that? I mean, maybe it's just me, you know? I, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I figured well, I might as well go to college. I mean, that's something to do. So I went to college. Um, my first semester, I earned a 1.7 GPA in academic probation. So uh, my prospects as a college student didn't look too good. Uh, my guiding principle, let's, we're here to have fun. And as Jim remembers, everything back then was uh, groovy. It, it, was, it was far out <laughs> uh, in those days. And so there I am, young, restless, drifting in the wind, until I personally met the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I'd known all about him. I grew up in a Christian home. But it wasn't until in my teen years where I had this encounter with Jesus that changed my life. And I found out, just as many of you have found out in your various stories as God has woven them together, that when you know Jesus, everything changes. Everything changes. We're going to look at a passage this morning in Philippians chapter 3 that has that sort of focus for us where Paul is going to talk about some theology, Paul is going to talk about some uh, Christian spirituality, what that looks like. And so it's a rich passage, but we have a lot to, to think through. And we're going to look at, at Philippians chapter 3 uh, this morning, the first 16 verses. So I'm going to do something here. We're, we're going to be very technical in our language. I'm going to break it up into four chunks. How's that sound? Four chunks. Verse 1, there's going to be a little section that's uh, just to get our attention, uh, to remind us of something that's important. Uh, verses 2 to 6, there's going to be a warning. 
And it's a, a warning that I have to give some background to if we're going to understand what Paul is talking about. So we're going to take this little historical side trip. In verses 3 through 11, there will be a central thesis. This is what Paul is arguing about. This is what he's going to let us know is so important in all of life. And then in verses 12 to 16, uh, we're going to have this exhortation to live out the implications of what he's just talked about. So four chunks, pretty easy, not too difficult. A proper focus, a stern warning, life's greatest value, and a rigorous response. And then all of that's going to be wrapped up with this idea that when you know Christ, everything changes. When you know Christ, everything changes. So let's look at verse 1. Ah, it is there. Okay. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. Now, many of us have been, been taught that the book of Philippians is the book of joy. It's about rejoicing, and to some degree that's, that's true because the word rejoice is used here about nine times. There's a command in verse 3, verse 1, and again in 4, verse 4, but it's the modifier that makes the command really stand out because Paul will talk about well, things that we should rejoice about, and he, earlier he says, I rejoice because even while I'm in prison, the gospel is being preached. I rejoice about that. Then later on, he's going to rejoice because his friend Epaphras is going to go back and visit the Philippians, and he's happy that he has come back from an illness and that they will be able to see him, and so he's happy about that. And, and so there are a number of things in the book that Paul rejoices about, but here he gives us a command, rejoice, but not about all kinds of things, but rejoice in the Lord. He commands us. To rejoice in the Lord. And it's going to be a major point for him. We could rejoice in all kinds of religious trappings. All kinds of religious things. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. He says rejoice in the Lord. And why? Because you put your trust not in the things of the flesh. Or the things of this world. But you rejoice in the Lord. He's reminding them of something that he's told them before or he's written to them before and he's not afraid to say it again. The idea is to establish in their mind something so permanently, pound it home, make it stick. I don't want you to forget this stuff. I think you've probably done the same thing with your kids. So you turn your keys over to your teen, and there's probably this reminder, now buckle up, watch the speed limit, pay attention, be careful. It's a safeguard. It reveals our personal concern, but it also reminds us of some important safety items. It reminds them of those items. And so in, in essence, what Paul is saying here in verse 1 is, listen up, I've said it before, but it's worth saying again, I, I don't mind telling you over and over again until it sticks. Rejoice in the Lord. Focus on Him. Love it. Such a friendly, warm tone in the way that he writes this to the book. But then in the next verse, there's a change. 
there's a new tone that's going to come out because there are people who are teaching false doctrine in the church, and they're not focused on the Lord. They are focused on their own religion. So we have this stern warning. Ah, we've already got one done. Verse 2 through 6, stern warning. Beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Now, how's that for a change of tone? Bam! I just woke you up. (laughs) Beware! And he does it again. Beware! And he does it again. Beware! Three times. He pounds that thing home. And it's really hard for us to grab a hold of the intensity of a verse like this because we have these figures of speech that are talking about the same group of, of people and they're kind of added up like for effect. I, I go back to, to kids again. I, somehow we can relate to what we do with kids. But you know you say, take out the garbage. Kind of mild. Nothing happens. <laughs> and you say it again, take out the garbage and nothing happens. And the third time it's, take out, well, you get the rest, the garbage. Now, that's what Paul is doing here. He's not anti-pet, by the way. Beware of dogs. There's nothing cuter than a puppy or a loyal Fido. But that's not what Paul is alluding to. In that time and culture, dogs were not highly regarded. To call somebody a dog was derogatory. They were considered unclean. They were considered uh, sexually immoral in points. There is a place in the Old Testament where the word dog is used of a male prostitute in the Old Testament. They called them dogs. So you add this word dogs, which is offensive to begin with, and then he comes up with false workers, false circumcision, and they're no less offensive. In fact, there's a play on words here that you wouldn't catch, but in verses 2, 3, and 5, there's an emphasis on circumcision. I don't know if you noticed it, but it's there. And, and in verses 3 and 5, the common word for circumcision is peritume. Right, doesn't that sound great? Greek on Sunday morning. You want to say it with me? Peritume? Or, yeah, okay. Tome, tume, whatever. All right. But then, then the next verse he has is the word peri, or, or kata tome. Peritome, kata tome. Circumcision means to cut around. Peritome. Katatome has a different sense. It has the idea of to cut to pieces, to mutilate, to cut off. And, and so our New American Standard is kind of soft in the way that it translated when it says false circumstance. It picks up the idea of it, but when the NIV says something like mutilators of the flesh, we're, we're nearer to the graphic nature of what Paul is talking about here. So I I want you to consider this. Paul writes this letter to a church, and and they are supposed to read this church out loud for the congregation. And so can you imagine Austin standing up here or Tom standing up here and going, uh, listen up, you dogs, you evil workers, you genital mutilators. That'd go over big, wouldn't it? Not exactly politically correct. 
but it is very, very strong language, and it's addressing a critical doctrinal matter. And if we're going to understand that doctrinal matter, we have to go on this cultural side trip. So bear with me. What is it that makes a person marked as chosen in the Old Testament? And we have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 17, where God has called Abraham to himself. And he said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a seed. I'm going to give you a blessing. And here's going to be the sign of that circumcision. And he says, look, if, if, nobody, if, if they're not circumcised, they're not in. If they are circumcised, they're in. This physical kinds of sign. Now, there's uh, that's a little bit truncated, but I understand you, you, you get where we're going here. What's the sign, the visible sign that you're part of the covenant people? Circumcision. And God made this agreement with Abraham long before. And then we, we read in, in Genesis 17, verse 14, but an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. That's pretty strong. You're in, you're out, depending on this physical sign. Now fast forward to the New Testament. The church was originally composed of Jewish believers, circumcised believers. But the book of Acts records how the church moved from being a Jewish church to a Gentile church. And there was discord between these two groups. There was division, fractions, arguments, went on and on. There was discord. And the question was, could the Gentiles be saved without circumcision? Peter got himself in hot water in the book of Acts. Chapter 10 and 11, maybe you remember the story. God gave him a vision, lowered the sheet, all these unclean animals, said, Peter, I want you to eat. Peter says, no way. God says, a couple more times, eat. And so Peter goes to the house of a Gentile named Cornelius. And, and Peter is talking to this Gentile, and as he's speaking, the Holy Spirit falls upon these Gentiles who are not circumcised. Problem. Now the folks in Jerusalem are all upset. And so this is going to continue on, and we get to Acts chapter 15, where we have this council that is called of all these uh, Jewish leaders, what are we going to do about this? And by the Holy Spirit, they come to the conclusion and say, nothing. Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. They do not need to obey the law of Moses in order to be saved. And so that didn't settle the problem. <laughs> The first book that Paul wrote was probably Galatians, early, 48 to 50, something like that. Same problem there. He's addressing, could Gentiles be saved apart from circumcision? And Paul is saying in Galatians, no. In fact, he goes on to say that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. So Galatians is written, 12 years or so go by, and Paul writes another letter, our letter, to the book of the church of Philippi, and he has to do it all over again. 
And he reminds them about those who preach confidence in the flesh, and he calls them dogs, evil workers, and false circumcision. Do you see how circumcision is a huge problem in the early church? Because circumcision is basically saying faith plus something else means salvation. To use Reformed uh, theology terminology, we'd say salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to God alone be the glory. Salvation is not works plus something. It is the work of God and not of man. So you, you think about it. This problem that we're dealing here with in Philippians is not dissimilar to what we have many times in our own churches. We have a faith plus something mentality. Faith plus being a good person. Faith plus anything, though, is not right. Beware, Paul says. Faith plus something is akin to dumping poison in the drinking water. It's like putting booze in a kid's bottle instead of formula. It ought not to be done. Beware, he says. Faith is, stands alone. So we have this severe warning that Paul is going on here, and he goes on and he makes this contrast, beginning in verse 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews to the, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law found blameless. Who are the true circumcision? The ones who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Where's the focus here? It's not on religious things. It's on a relationship with Christ. No confidence in the flesh, confidence in God. That's what Paul is getting at. So Paul looks at his credentials and say, look, if there is anybody who could possibly, you know, be in good with God because of credentials, let me talk about my credentials. He had some reasons to boast. And so he begins in verse 5 with these credentials, circumcised the eighth day. That one always humors me when I read it. I've never had a conversation where someone said, tell me about yourself, and I opened it up with circumcised on the eighth day. <laughs> end of conversation, end of job interview. <laughs> but the meaning here is Paul is saying, I am fully Jew. I am not a pagan. It has something to do with higher social status. He says, of the nation of Israel. In other words, he's not a proselyte. He, he's not considered second class. He says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. The first king was from the tribe of Benjamin. little name dropping maybe here. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. 
didn't follow the Greek or Roman ways of his culture. As to law, a Pharisee. In fact, that was the strictest group. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He went out of his way to protect Judaism. As to the righteousness of, of the law found blameless, no one could fault him on his religious practice. Now, I might get myself in trouble here, but it would be someone, you know, just throwing your resume out there, it would be like someone saying, I went to Harvard. If you have any Harvard grads here, I said that wrong. But. And, and I, now I have this, this upper floor corner office in the Trump building as a senior partner, and uh, my private helicopter is about to pick me up at 3 o'clock. Let's get with the program here, you know. See, it's a status symbol. If religious status symbols counted, Paul was among the elite. But how important was it? How important was it to Paul? The next section is the, the, the key to this passage, and a her, huge reversal takes place. Knowing Christ changes everything. Some of Paul's credentials were by birth, some were by dedication, but he's saying that though even these things are not necessarily bad, he's saying they're very overrated. Pick it up at verse 7. But whenever things are gained to me, these things I have, let's do this a little bit, observation time, counted. Just raise your hand if I, you hear the word counted anywhere. Okay, there you go. But whatever things are gained to me, these things I have counted, good, lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss, whoops, that's the wrong one, and count, there we go, and count them rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. How many times were there? I goofed you up, but we had three. Three times. And each time he uses that word, it gets intensified just a little bit. In verse 7, he says, those things, referring back to his Jewish credentials, they're counted as... Loss. Oh, okay, there's the lost one. In verse 8, he changes the language to all things. I count all things as loss. And then finally, he goes way over the top. Instead of using the word loss, he uses the word rubbish. I count them but rubbish. Our translation softens this word, really softens this word. It's a vulgar term in the Greek language. Scubalon. You want to give it a try? Scubalon. You just swore in Greek. <laughs> a word picture might help here. One, one summer, I, I, I love to fish. Uh, we lived in Colorado for eight years, had a church there. We we're just a mile from the Colorado River. And, and uh, one hot summer, I went down to the Colorado River and I, I caught a whole mess of catfish. And I cleaned the catfish put all the entrails in a garbage bag, put the garbage bag in a black garbage can, and I've promptly forgot that they were there and went off for a week. And when I got back, 
I had scuba on. I was never, ever able to get that stench out of that can. And the whole can, it, they, they were coming up the side and it all, all maggots. Nasty, nasty, indescribable filth and smell. You get the picture? Scubalon. Now, the word can refer to putrid scraps of garbage, but it can also refer to feces or dung. And one of the Greek lexicons translates it politely as crap. Paul was not afraid to use some words. You know, I count it all crap. In another entry, it uses a stronger uh, vulgarity, and I'll leave that one to your imagination. But do you see what Paul is saying here? The very best he had to offer, the very best, all of his credentials, Scubalon. Why? Because he had found something that was of even greater value. And that was the person of Christ and the righteousness that he provides. Why did he count these things lost? Because of Christ. Nothing else mattered. Nothing else mattered. Serving Christ, knowing Christ, suffering for Christ, that became the focal point of Paul's life. So, Paul is saying, you know, what is the focal point of of life? Our zeal should be then to know Christ. Our zeal is to serve Christ. Our, Our zeal is to do everything that Christ might have us to do. MasterCard, anybody carry one of those? Yeah, they've had this campaign started in 1997. Clever tagline, there are some things money can't buy. Remember that one? For everything else, there's MasterCard. And over the years, they've showed us all kinds of things that that money just can't buy, and they tagged it this way, priceless. You got the picture? In this text, Paul is saying, what is priceless? Christ. And it has nothing to do with MasterCard. Knowing Christ is beyond price. He's priceless. And in comparison, everything else is scubalon. Everything else. Let that sink in. We get so worried about some of the things in our life. We, we waste our lives on social media thinking we need to know what others are doing and they need to know what we're doing. Scoobalon. We chase higher paying job with a fancy title and more cash. Scoobalon. We seek protection or perfection in our looks and dress and the brands that we wear and the cars that we drive. Scoobalon. We look for security and acceptance in a multitude of relationships. Scoobalon. More important than comfort and status is knowing Christ. And when we know Christ, it changes everything. Our values are turned upside down to that of the world. Austin talked about this in chapter 1. Paul was in prison. No problem. I'm in prison, but the gospel is being preached even more. Praise the Lord. Others put their trust in religious symbols. And Paul says, no, they're not worth it. 
Nothing is more important than the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Verse 8. So we've kind of wandered through three areas here. Proper focus, rejoice in the Lord. Stern warning, don't trust in religious traditions and practices. We've seen that the supreme value of life is to know Christ and to be found righteous in Him by faith. And the last is, Paul says, you need to respond to this. This is not just here for you to know something, it's here for you to do something. In verse 12 to 16, let's read. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. And next week, that'll get fleshed out even more. I could say a lot about this passage, but let me summarize. Because Paul is essentially saying, you know, look, I want you to look at me. And I have this simple message for you to to think about, despite everything that I have done, but despite everything that Christ has done for me, I have not yet arrived. I still have a ways to go. He says, I press on. And he says, that's the attitude you need to have too. In the end, he says, there is a prize that's so great that it is worth everything. Worth everything. And so he uses this metaphor of athletic competition. And and you have this idea of a sprinter straining towards that finish line. And the prize is awarded and the scholars will disagree on what the prize is, but what it comes down to in the end is Christ and all that he has done for us. We become mature, but we must press forward. We've never arrived. We're not there yet. So we press on. It makes sense that if knowing Christ is the highest goal, then straining to know him better will change the way that we live. I've said it several times. You might recognize it by now. Knowing Christ changes everything. Good. It gives us discernment about what is important. It changes values and direction and perspective and focus and whatever. And so what this passage is saying, look, turn away from confidence in the flesh. Turn away from anything that's added to the gospel. It means recklessly investing one's life in knowing Christ. Sort of a kick in the backside, isn't it? We start to think about it. To know Christ is motivation to press on to finish what he's called us to. Been reading a book by Jerry Bridges. He's with the Lord now, but he was a writer for the Navigators for many years. And the book is called Holiness by Day Transformational Thoughts for Your Spiritual Journey. 
And I've been convicted by some of the questions that he raises in a couple of little notes that he makes. He says, do I have a right relationship with God based on the imputed righteousness of Christ? Am I trusting in Christ alone for my salvation or to some degree relying on my own morality and religious duties? If I know I'm justified through through faith in Christ, do I enjoy the reality of it in my daily experience? Or do I look to my own performance for acceptance with God? Another place, he says, what's your spiritual goal? Ooh, we said goals every place else, don't we? Do I have a spiritual goal? Do you really want to get the prize? Do you want to grow to be the man or woman God wants you to be? Do you want to pay the price of the spiritual disciplines you need to practice in order to get there? Or as he says, will you be content to sort of muddle through your Christian life and at the end, have to sum it all up as no more meaningful than a trip to the corner store for a loaf of bread. The choice is yours. What will it be? My story's not finished yet. And your story's not finished yet. But I can say this, I'm further along than I used to be. Now that I know Christ, I can never be the same. And that's the point of the message. When you know Christ, everything changes. In fact, everything must change because of the infinite value of knowing him. Let's pray together. Father, Paul had some hard words for us here, words of hope, words that even in a wounded and hurting congregation this morning that there will come a day when there is a resurrection and we will see you face to face and those who know you will live with you. We will be reunited with loved ones who have gone before, who have walked in faith. We know that you've changed our lives and we know that you don't want us to be on a plateau but to continually strive for that which you have called us to. Lord, I'm glad that you saved me. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I'm glad that in knowing you, everything has changed. And I'd pray for my friends here as well. Lord, that all of us together would come to that place of understanding the value of Christ and all that he means. We thank you for these things today. In Jesus' name, amen. And you are dismissed.